Welcome to the Community Pioneers podcast with me, Chris Smith. I'm delighted to be joined in the pod this week by Colin Harris, who's the uh, the founder participant in something which is absolutely fabulous uh, in its title alone, Tatties to Tables. Not since Snakes on Planes have I heard a better title for something that just says so obviously what it does on the tin. Welcome, Colin. <laughs> Good morning, Chris. Colin, can you just give us a, an outline of what Tatties to Tables is all about? Well, it's um, quite, quite simple. At the start of this year, we had access to a surplus of potatoes. And previously, we've been growing potatoes. My father was a potato grower. My wider family are potato growers. I'm not. Um, I have an architecture practice in Edinburgh. But um, I'd always grown a few drills of potatoes um, as a hobby, uh, just to pass down the process to my kids and so on. Um, and we had some surplus, which we thought, well, we could maybe take into a food bank and Dundee, which would be our local food bank. And at the same time, the market seemed to have stalled or fallen out away from the uh, the potato market for provision to the catering industry as the pubs and restaurants and so on were closed due to the pandemic. So uh, one of my uncles and a few local farmers seem to have a, a, an enormous glut of potatoes, which I thought and in, in, in discussions with my father that actually we could see if we could get more of a continual amount of potatoes to food banks. And so um, we phoned up a few places and right enough there was demand there. And uh, soon after that just evolved into something much larger and and uh, now we're supplying potatoes directly to food provision initiatives um, all over Scotland. Okay, could, when you say there were a few potatoes left over, a little bit of a surplus, can you just qualify what that number is? <laughs> well, from my own point of view, I mean, we were only growing two or three tonnes um, and only using two or three bags, and then I was giving out bags to friends over Christmas and so on. But uh, in terms of, for example, my uncle, he had approximately about 75 tonnes um, available that we could use, that if we didn't use, um, then they would go for stock feed. Um, and then cousins had, you know, several tonnes. Um, Neighbours had availability of, of 30, 40, 50 tonnes. So, all of a sudden, there was well over 100 tonnes of potatoes um, that we could get access to if we could find um, places that would receive them. What kind of places were you you giving them? You said people who were in the food provision. I mean, how, what kind of businesses and how far uh, afield do you go? The way in which it, it evolved was um, originally it was just, like I said, a, a call to a couple of places in Dundee and each time I called somebody gave me somebody else to speak to and it evolved a little bit that way um, and then a, a friend of a friend um, is a green councillor in Edinburgh, Gavin Corbett and we approached Gavin to see if he had any 
pointers in terms of where we could um, distribute within Edinburgh, and um, he he did, and within an evening, I think I was I was then receiving emails from the voluntary access organisations in Edinburgh who were distributing my email out to all the food providers in Edinburgh. And within a week, I think we had about seven or eight different places in Edinburgh that were were requesting some potatoes. Um, varied sizes, whether it was um, churches who were basing their food provision on pastoral care or whether it was places such as Empty Kitchens in Edinburgh, which was set up to provide food um, and lease um, by a bunch of chefs who were furloughed. Um, and the point we contacted them, they were providing 1,400 meals a day. And so they were requiring, at that time in the region, of maybe one or two tonnes a week. An incredible varied number of, of initiatives with varied uh, um, justifications for, for being in existence and uh, a, 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 as good a variation um, in terms of, of people who, who were running them as well, um, which is fascinating. Soon we were steady with, with providing that number of bags of potatoes into Edinburgh, Dundee and so on, that we just started to approach some of the other voluntary access um, organisations in the other county areas. So Falkirk County, um, Angus, um, Perthshire, counties that were quite local to where the potatoes were coming from. But, you know, we, we again had a, a huge demand and uh, we then got in touch with some in Glasgow. Um, and now, so we're right providing potatoes right across to, I think, our Drossens, the furthest west, um, Gorebridge and Pennycook and southern parts of Edinburgh um, and up to Forfar and uh, Dundee in the north, Blairgowrie and Ailith. So quite a, quite a large area. How does it actually work from the, the the farmer's end? Do they get to hear of this scheme and proffer up stuff to you directly? Well, because there's such large quantities or, or has been such large quantities in the farmer's sheds, um, I haven't actually had to go too far um, to get access to them. So primarily we've used um, uncle's, my uncle's potatoes, cousins, potatoes, my neighbours around where I live, which isn't quite as close to, to the far, the other farms. Um, so in terms of, of provision of potatoes and also of bags, because bag, the bagging process is actually quite labour intensive um, and bags are quite costly. So we've had a huge amount of bags provided as well from, from local farmers. So all in all, I think there's maybe about seven farms that have been providing either bags or potatoes or the service of, of bagging them up. Um, and most of them are based in and around Perth or, or Dundee. Well, this seems such a great idea, so simple, 
a surplus, people who need it, the two join up really quick, easily. But there's something about you were uniquely placed to be able to spot this, I guess, as a, a part of your background, I guess, in, in your, your upbringing. Is that, would that be correct to say? Yes, I think so. I, I was brought up um, in a small holding, um, which is basically a, a lowland croft. Um, uh, they were set up or created um, after World War II when some of the larger country estates were subdivided into parcels of land, about 25, maybe 40 acres. And each one was a new house was built and a shed. Um, and so they're all very close together. And so when I was brought up, um, my grandparents lived in one. All their friends uh, had one very close by. And so there was a real community feel to that area. And if somebody needed something, then you would just ask a neighbour. And, and there was a great mix of, of, of friendship and, and working as well between, between the inhabitants of all these small holdings. And so I guess my background was always very much about being able to do something for others. My mother is quite um, religious and, and heavily involved in the Church of Scotland as well. And, and there's a, obviously a very strong community based around the local parish church as well. And so it just seemed to be, you know, something that I was happy to do. Um, didn't question it, really. This is, seems to be part of like what would be described locally anyway, in, in my part of Northeast Wife, would be the farmer mentality, which is you don't wait for someone to uh, provide a service or, or whatever. You just jump in and proactively do something if a uh, you know, if the, if a road needs clearing in the um, in the midst of a uh, the a, bl a blizzard, for example, everybody gets together and does it, versus waiting to put a call into the council. So is that that kind of shapes the way that you've you've looked at things, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. Um, when the opportunity arose, it was very much yeah. There was a demand. There was people needing it, and there were sheds full of potatoes. And I had a car and a trailer. So I would take them from A to B. And really, it was quite as simple as that. You know, it, it ultimately just comes down to being in a position uh, where I had time as well. Due to the pandemic, our, our own work had uh, been stalled to a certain extent. There was a number of projects which, uh, which had been put on hold. And so I had a little bit more time. And uh, it just seemed to be quite obvious that that was what we had to do. Yeah, that's interesting you say that because the I guess a lot of people have used their time in, and the lockdown to do lots of new and interesting things. But I'm equally interested that your professional life as an architect, there is links between architecture and the food networks going forward, isn't there? I mean, it's. I mean, have I got the wrong picture in my head of um, architects being, you know, people who wander around in lounge suits, uh, ponytails with expensive biros, um, drawing schemes that will never be achieved? Or is there a, a more, is there more agrarian side to uh, architecture? Well, I, think, I, I don't think it's easy to um, pigeonhole architects as all being the same. I think, uh, 
the way in which we are taught the subject, I'd like to think we are our own identities and our own personalities are enhanced to become a, an architect. And so there are many different types of architects out there, as there are many different types of people in society. Um, some, I guess, are, are more driven towards the concept of building a brave new world, and, and some are very much community-focused and, and trying to hang on to the fragility of certain communities and so on. Um, I'm in a practice which our, our work is uh, incredibly varied from, I think the smallest project we've done was a allotment hut in Edinburgh and the largest project that we've created was a um, 180,000 square meter museum in Chengdu and Sichuan in China. So somehow we have to grapple with the concept of, of, of our users and who they are and what their ambitions are and so on. And so you're always trying to assess a situation um, and people as well. And the tattoos to tables thing is, it isn't dissimilar to that as well. You're, you're trying to assess a situation and you're trying to systematically approach the most efficient and effective way in which you can achieve your goal. So as an architect, with your architecture mindset, looking at the situation you find you're in now, which is you're creating this new way of, of food distribution um, in a much more um, fluid way, what what do you see in the future for this this type of uh, of distribution mechanism? I think the way in which I'm really intrigued by it is I can see, uh, and I may be wrong in this because I, I, you know, we just started this in February and this is now the start of June. So we've only been dealing with this uh, system or network or concept of provision of food to those who need it um, for a few months. But it appears to be that everything, all the food that's provided um, is provided by resourcing waste, not necessarily waste, but food that's about to become waste because it's it's getting close to its sell by date or it's surplus food. Um, and it's organized by a number of hugely varied initiatives which come at it from a, um, a point of view where, where there is desperation. And so people are, are having to do this um, very quickly um, with not necessarily a huge amount of support. Um, but nonetheless, there are something like 700,000 households in the UK that are using food banks. And um, that's a lot of food that they need to survive. And it appears to me as if that is a reactionary process that uh, gets the food onto their tables. Whereas if there is a requirement for feeding that number of people every year, um, it's increasing every year, it's not diminishing. And so there must be a better way in which we can organize this so that the money that's used to produce that food that they're ultimately getting 
can be used in a way in which there is stability in the process. So, for example, we may be able to get into a situation where we can grow potatoes specifically um, to give to all these organisations so that perhaps there's a way in which we can um, find sta staple foods, good nutritious staple foods such as potatoes, maybe carrots and, and other vegetables and make sure that they're, they are provided for in a regular um, weekly basis throughout the entire year. Um, and that the organisations that are providing the food directly to the people who need it aren't having to react on a weekly basis as to, to the types of food that they're getting. For example, there was, there was one conversation I was having um, with a lovely guy called Jim at the uh, Falkirk Food Bank, um, and I was providing some carrots. Um, I've been providing carrots as well. And... Uh, I asked him if he, if he would like some uh, carrots. And he said, well, no, actually, I've just received a ton of frozen carrots, uh, which I've got to distribute this week. Now, he didn't have fridges or anything like that to be able to store them. He just had to quickly distribute a ton of frozen carrots. Other organisations, there was one in Dundee where I'd been taking potatoes and generally I, I phone phone around or, or email around at the start of every week to just see who, who needs what. And they were unable to take any potatoes because they just received about, I think it was three and a half tons of hair products. Um, and so, the, you know, quite often a lot of the restrictions in which people can provide food um, are based around what space they have in their warehouse. So if they've just received three tons of hair products and there's no where to store um, potatoes, and uh, I think that's that's one way in which we're looking at trying to evolve this as an initiative. Is it so that we can provide just a regular amount? They know exactly what they're getting each week. The difficulty that we're going to have is that because it's a never growing, um, there's a never growing demand, then. Each initiative can't always say what, what their use is going to be because if we're providing 20 bags of potatoes to them each fortnight, for example, they may get a huge supply of potatoes from a supermarket that's nearing its sell-by date. So our difficult difficulties and complexities are, are very much based around how each and an every individual charity works. So what kind of things have you learned in in this whole exercise as being the important factors, if anyone was were to be considering this type of operation for any other distribution of any, uh, any product or surplus, what kind of attributes have you found to be important? I think to be as flexible as possible, really. I am lucky because I've had a certain amount of time to be able to be flexible. Um, the supply of potatoes has been flexible because um, there is so much of it. And so everything's just fallen into place from that point of view. But really the, the provision at the moment is quite, or, or the, the, the requests are quite chaotic. So each week 
they differ radically. And so we've tried to set up um, distribution points um, in some of the larger areas where there are multiple initiatives requiring supply. Um, Dunfermline, for example, I have one drop off there every two weeks. And from that distribution point, I think there are eight different organisations that either come to pick up their own supply or there is a council van which will then take them from that distribution point and, and deliver them directly to the smaller initiatives. Similarly, in Glasgow, there are two locations that I take to, one in the east, one in the west. Um, and from there, there are about 20, 25 individual organisations that either collect or, or receive from that point. So that's fantastic for me because it means I can plan ahead. I know the amount I need to deliver to them every fortnight. But then there are smaller ones, more outlying ones, where the local councils or initiatives haven't been able to set up centralised distribution point. And so I'm having to deliver directly to them. And it might only be one bag or two or three bags, some are a tonne, which are which is 40 bags. And these are large 25 kilogram bags. As we go forward, um, that's, that's the first thing that we really need to establish if we're going to provide more potatoes to more people, then we need to streamline the situation a little bit more. Okay, what's the wrong answer to this situation? Um, can you, how do you mean what? Well, I mean, so faced with a problem like this, there are a number of people who could come forward and say, do you know what the, the easiest answer to the problem you've got of, of volatility, of, of supply and, and demand, the best idea is let's get the government involved or let's get a centralised organisation that pulls it all together and sets up a systematic way of looking at this problem. That potentially, to me, strikes me as that there are this the need to centralise it could be absolutely the wrong answer, but one that can be proposed. Yeah, and there are organisations involved in more of a centralised role. Um, obviously, the Trust or Trust is trying to provide advice and support for a number of them under their umbrella. And then there is Fair Share, which is set up to receive a huge amount of food and then distribute it directly to the smaller initiatives. Um, but what I found at the moment is that it's not quite enough. Um, it needs There needs to be more out there. Uh, for example, Fair Share, f with the conversations I've had, um, are you know, limited on, on the resources they have in terms of volunteers and employees and uh, the sizes of their individual warehouses and so on. They can only do so much. I think the, the concept of, of growing food specifically for this purpose is the way in which the UK should really try and think about it. No matter what political party is in power, there is going to be a variation from one to the next in terms of support for lower-income families and, and, and individuals. And so if we were able, you know, this whole process 
is just society's way of, of still providing for those lower income families out with the political system. So I think that that is always going to be there. You know, there's a lot of kind hearted people in the world that, that want to help. And so that support is going to always be there. And it's just a case of trying to do it and organize it in a way where um, it's 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 more effect, effective, really. Could you like comment on some of the the range and diversity of the people that you, you've actually been involved with the project so far? Yeah, that's 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 one of the real joys of doing this. Actually, is the people that I'm meeting. Some some are some are just fantastic. I've got uh, Tom, who's the minister in St Nicholas's Church in Sight Hill. He's from Uganda, and you know, incredibly smiley face who comes at it with a. a uh, an approach which I guess will that he will have learned from not only as his from his studies as a minister, but obviously his his local background within Uganda and the way in which communities uh, work there. And he just opens up a bag of potatoes, leaves it at the door, and the whole community comes around and helps themselves. And it's you know that's a really nice thing to see. Um, we've got. All the uh, ladies that help out in uh, Alva that I take potatoes to, and they're not funded in any way other than the funding that they organise through themselves. And they, they are feeding huge numbers of people um, by creating meals for, for the elderly and so on. There is Pearl, who is um, involved with the Friendship Cabin in Glenrothes, and they're organization was set up in the pandemic to give friendship basically to those who were at home on their own um, had nobody to speak to and so the friendship cabin basically creates a, a group where anyone is welcome and, and can come and, and communicate with others and try and avoid the isolation and the mental health issues that, that come with, with the isolation and so on. So, yeah, a huge number of, of varied people. Glasgow Gurdwara, I take it, uh, I take regular large amounts, trailer loads of potatoes. Um, and the Glasgow Gurdwara is stored there. And then I've got people like Jindy, um, who then organises all the distribution around the the southern western side of, of Glasgow um, at the moment there you may have seen in the news that you know they've set up a, a testing site and vaccination site within the Gurdwara car park and so on so they're hugely community um, orientated um, and that's just a fantastic organization so um yeah, that's been a real joy, actually, meeting all these different people. So you obviously have taken a lot from the, the project so far. I guess the, the question that's in the back of my mind is, as we're moving forward into easing of lockdown and so on, what happens next for Colin Harris? <laughs> um, I don't know is the answer. Um, I I have my practice where it's looking like it's going to start to get busy again as things open up. Um, 
for 20 years, that's taken 100% of my focus pretty much. So it will be difficult. It's um, I originally imagined that when we, we started doing the potato thing that it would last until about June when the potatoes ran out. Um, but as things have evolved, um, I've now been pledged potatoes that could last through the summer and by that point then new ones will be being lifted. So it could be a thing that uh, continues um, all year round. So I think some of the thoughts we've been discussing about trying to create something that is more of a network, streamlining the system that we have in place at the moment. It's, it's going to be a, a continued evolving thing in which that we try to make better. I'd like to think that we can keep it going. I certainly have friends and cousins um, who are in the potato industry who are also interested in, in potentially evolving it into something that has, has longevity. So who knows, really? I can imagine that we could be providing potatoes to 80% of those that we provide to at the moment with just maybe one or two days a week. So it might be that I can just keep going and do one or two days a week and, and that'll provide potatoes for uh, most of the, those in need throughout central Scotland. But who knows, it might be something that could evolve into a national thing, um, but that would obviously take a lot more resourcing and uh, support as well from a funding point of view. But I mean, that's the important point, isn't it? That the the network being set up in the way that it has, with all the various links that you've you've made, tatties to tables, is going to continue evolve and continue in in some form. I noticed that you're still running a a, a fundus online, which will will pop a link in the, uh, the the program notes as well. But it seems to me that from from what you're saying, the the sheer enjoyment that you've had in establishing this network and making the connections has been rewarding for you but equally rewarding for everybody who's been involved yeah i would like to think so certainly the, a lot of the feedback i've had from certain people is that this is making a huge difference to put into context i had a conversation with mark uh, who's a lovely guy who set up a, a food bank in pennycook and he receives a huge amount of food from fair share. But at the time when we started taking potatoes to him, he was really only receiving one bag a week from them. Um, and that's purely, like I said earlier, down to the fact that fair share has limited um, warehouse capacity and therefore can only share out what they have room to store. Um, so we were at the time, you know, taking through one two tons which is 40 or 80 bags at a time to him yeah I, i've forgotten your question again actually yeah it's really just about clearly you've got a lot from from this whole exercise to date that there's clearly people involved have got a great deal more than just food in connecting these networks of people up who civic-minded community it's reassuring to them to know that there's someone many miles away who's spent time planting a crop and has looked around and seen risen to a need and been quite selfless about it. These, these tatties 
don't grow themselves. They don't drop out of the skies. So folk have been very charitably minded, but also there's been a reward on, on all sides. Yes, absolutely. And that's one thing that we are aware of, that although many farmers have pledged potatoes for this, that we don't take advantage of it. If we're going to grow a network that's going to have longevity, then we have to be fair to everyone on, on all sides. The cost of growing a ton of potatoes is roughly about £120. Um, and so at the moment, we've been actually buying them from farmers by using the funding that we, we have received through friends and colleagues and friends of friends and buying them from the farmers at a much reduced cost, maybe say £30 per tonne, which is a lot less than the £120 it's cost them to grow them but it's more than maybe what they're getting for selling them as stock feed. I would like to be able to buy them from them for a slightly higher amount so that at least they're not losing out. But that's all based around just taking an um, educated guess at what we can afford to pay and basing that on the tonnage that we're going to use and for a certain amount of time to supply potatoes to all the different initiatives. So, yeah, we're definitely making a difference. All these different organisations now have regular access. They don't need to worry about having potatoes. And, and like I said, we were, you, um, we were providing a number of tonnes of carrots as well, although carrots have been a slightly higher cost item for us and take a lot more time to bag and, and organize but um, yeah there is a there is a, a regular supply for everyone out there and then my my own personal positive is is the fact that it seems to be the obvious thing to do and uh, I'm meeting a lot of great people and, and getting a good understanding of, of, of what the problems are and uh, where we can potentially help which is quite satisfying. Well, it's been a fascinating chat, Colin. Thanks very much for your, your time. Um, as we close, uh, any final thoughts? Um, well, I'd obviously like to thank everyone um, who has supported us to date, whether that's through um, our GoFundMe page and, um, or whether it's people who have assisted us in the supply of, of, of vegetables and potatoes or just the organisation and... Um, setting up the network um, or, or, or doing a lot of the hard hard lifting, which has been fantastic. I think it would be good if people could maybe learn a little bit more of our story from our Facebook page, uh, Tatis to Tables. I think one of the things I found quite difficult expressing what we're doing and for people to understand is that there's such a stigma over food poverty. People, or a lot of people still believe that, you know, people have to fend for themselves and so on. Um, the Trussell Trust has just commissioned a report which has been researched by Harriet Watt University. And one of the outcomes of that is that they state that 62% of working age people who have been registered with the food bank have a dis disability. 
And so, you know, that's quite an eye-opening statistic. And that's what that's one that I've learned recently. And I'm now realizing every day just how difficult it is for certain people in society to just gain basic, simple food. And it would be great if we all could have a wider understanding of the problem. Um, and I hope that maybe we, we are in a position where we can help with that. Well, Colin, on, on that happy note, thanks again for your time. I really do appreciate it. Okay, thanks, Chris.